Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, and this podcast is for investment professionals only. For the best part of a decade, the global economy has grown and grown, but there are early signs that the tide may be turning. And if that's the case, then bar running for the hills, what's an investor to do? The old rules have either been forgotten or no longer work in a world very different from the one before the global financial crisis. I'm Richard Edgar, and today I've gathered some of Fidelity's leading thinkers to help come up with the answers for how to invest in a world less certain. Joining me in the studio are Sonia Laut, Head of Equity, Steve Ellis, Head of Fixed Income in Europe, and James Bateman, Chief Investment Officer for Multi Asset. Now, a question for all of you before we uh, get going. At the risk of being indiscreet, you're all old enough to remember the crisis of 2007 and 2009, but young enough for it to have shaped your careers and perhaps your thinking. So, what I'd like to know first of all is what surprised you most uh, in the years since during the great bull runs? Uh, let me come to you, James, first of all. So I guess I, I'd probably begin, Richard, by saying I'm quite surprised we've all got jobs. Um, you know, it did feel in 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 08, um, I was in the office uh, block in London next to the Lehman's building watching everyone leave. It did feel like that was the end of the financial services industry. And actually, the fact that finance is booming, maybe in different ways, but actually that the industry's in pretty good health, you know, whilst there's there have been some issues in trust with the industry, um, clients are still investing, we're still seeing you know, a a real equity market. We've seen the debt markets return to normality as well. I mean, all of that, to an extent, is a surprise. Well, not not without an awful lot of help from the central banks. Not without an awful lot of help. But I think, you know, in in, in sort of September 08, you felt the end was nigh. And by March 09, you were enjoying the start of a bull market. I mean, you know, that, that, that was quite surprising, I think, how quickly, you know, animal spirits began to return. Steve, how about you? Well, I think the uh, the thing that's really most surprised me since uh, 2008 has been the extremely subdued nature of volatility. And I think it goes back to what you're saying, Richard, about the help from central banks in you know supplying huge amounts of liquidity. The balance sheet of the G3 banks has increased by about $18 trillion since then. So this provision of liquidity, I think, has been responsible for the very subdued nature of liquidity, of, of uh, volatility, rather, and um, but it still has very much surprised me that we haven't seen more regular bouts of volatility, given the fact that the you know debt levels in the global economy now are so much higher than they were even back at the uh, the you know the eve of the crisis back in 2008. You'd still expect, given the leverage that's been building up, particularly in corporates and off ba- off balance sheet banks, etc., that you would have seen much more periodic episodes of volatility and risk aversion, but markets have been extremely resilient and durable. And an eerie calm, perhaps? We'll come to that, I suppose, later on. Yeah, I think it's very possible, actually, because the liquidity taps are being turned off right now. And the G3, well, certainly the Fed, are beginning to unwind its balance sheet and, and raise interest rates. And that could be Cause you know certainly cause some problems going down the road. Sonia, what about you? What surprised you about this uh, this remarkable period over not quite a decade? I guess bringing the the market perspective in a bit broader, not just just fixed income, is how well we have all done 
in terms of asset price inflation. And I think the most striking feature to me is the fact that markets across the board, including fine wine, old timers and any other kind of sellable asset, has done done particularly well and has outperformed the real economy. That is is, is a striking feature. So it's not only that we have jobs, but how well those with jobs have done on the back of the extraordinary monetary policy support. And this is why, to me, the most important question is, if, as Steve has just highlighted, we have now turned off the taps, what is going to happen? Because we have to assume, and this is something we have witnessed already um, since the beginning of the year, that actually markets can underperform the economy just because we have a very distinctive change in the way we have been supported for the past 10 years. Well, I think you set up sorry, can, the- can I come in with one comment on that? Sorry, that, that I think, Sonia, hits a very important point there, that that you've seen a disparity in the returns from being an asset owner to being being someone who actually works. And yes, we all have jobs. And actually, yes, in a lot of countries, unemployment is low. But we haven't seen wage inflation. We're seeing tentative signs now. But after a, a decade from a, from, the, from the, the start of the crisis, um, the average worker isn't materially better off. And that is a very unusual situation nine years, nine plus years into a bull market. Okay, well, I think you've all set us up for a discussion then. And what I'd like to turn to now is what's the situation at the moment? Where do we find ourselves right now, Sonia? So what characterises this particular cycle and where we are at the moment? I think the striking feature of 2018 is the reassessment on where we are in the cycle how asset inf- um, asset price inflation stacks up, how valuation levels stack up, and the volatility that has started really is just a sign of this reassessment because people try to figure out whether the risk and the risk profile of their of their portfolio and asset allocation is adequate for where we are in the cycle. And um, the, the idea that g- growth might have peaked obviously raises a lot of question marks. Um, we haven't even touched on politics, all the other headlights that are, that are um, around and, and are really kind of raising uncertainty and, and unfortunately well, means we, we struggle. Indeed. I mean, all the rules seem to have been chucked up into the air at the moment. So you can't look at anywhere um, and expect it to behave in the way that it might have done before if we got to this stage in the cycle. Uh, would you, James? Absolutely, Richard. And I, I think what's interesting, I'm not going to thump the table because it will make a, a dreadful noise on the microphones. But <laughs> if I did thump the table with our water glasses on it, you'd see the water wobble and then the, the, the wobble sort of gradually decrease and go. And actually, that's what's happened this year with volatility, that yes, we had a spike in volatility, but you've seen that volatility again recede in the market. And what's so odd at this point in the cycle is um, there are so many reasons to worry, you know, from, from, you know, basic valuations, um, prospects for future earnings beyond, you know, maybe next year, geopolitics, etc. And yet, actually, we, we see one period of volatility and then we see that gradually reduce over the year. And, and that is absolutely atypical at this point in the cycle. So if there's not a, um, a, a, a jarring spasm that comes from somewhere... Um, it sounds like it's going to be the turning off the taps that um, is, the, is the critical thing here. Uh, Steve, I'm looking at you because uh, the Fed is clearly fundamental to, to what happens uh, next. What should we be most wary of um, as it transitions from quantitative easing into tightening? Well, <clears throat> Richard, I think it's the key thing for markets right now is their move from QE to QT in reducing their balance sheet, which is about $4.5 trillion, and Fed rate hikes as well, which are obviously tightening dollar liquidity and also the huge amounts of dollar issuance, you know, treasury issuance that's taking a place because of the um, the budgetary expanse at the you know very late cycle, um, and so th- that's draining a huge amount of liquidity. And what the important thing here is, Richard, is that that dollar liquidity is being drained in what we call the offshore uh, dollar liquidity market. 
In other words, this is kind of the euro dollar market, which stemmed from petrodollar. It's the huge amounts of dollar liquidity, which is flowing around the global economy, seeking yield and seeking you know, exposure to risk assets. Um, an environment of very subdued uh, volatility. But it's now and, heading home. And Well, the, what, the reason why it has, hasn't so far hit the US, I think, is that at the same time you've had a huge amount of dollar repatriation um, you know, because of the profit repatriation, etc., by in, in, um, invoked by Trump. And so the, the, if you think about the statistic, statistics here, so since April, um, money supply, end to money supply in the global offshore dollar liquidity market has actually fallen by $2.4 trillion. It's been a huge drainage of liquidity, and that's why emerging markets have been under so much pressure, is because it's really tightening liquidity for you know, corporate sovereigns who have been you know, borrowing in huge amounts of dollars in the last few years. Up. Whereas in the US, M2 money supply has actually increased by about $350 billion because of that money coming back onshore. In other words, you've seen a capital account drainage from the offshore, you know, from the emerging markets, back into the US. So money supply growth has actually been quite robust in the US. And that's why you're seeing very good performance of asset prices in the US, whether it's investment grade, high yield US markets, etc. But sooner or later, that turn, that tap will turn off as well. And uh, it's going to be a lot more uh, you know, difficult for risk assets, I think. What, what, what might stop the Fed? Um, it's not obliged to look internationally at the picture. It's only its mandate is just to look within the US. Um, what's going to what could knock them off course? Well, I think you have to have some severe market dislocation first, um, and whether that happens uh, indirectly. So, in other words, because of what's happening in emerging markets right now, which seems frankly, a very low probability that is going to derail the Fed from continuing with its Fed rate hikes and drainage of dollar liquidity. I think it has to be something onshore that has to, that has to happen. In other words, we see a massive um, you know, spread widening in US high yield, US investment grade, which causes a very sharp tightening in monetary conditions there. Um, I think that's the only thing that can really derail the Fed and suddenly cause them to go on hold and to stop the rate hiking cycle and or to taper the balance sheet unwind. And it's very possible they could early next year. So if, if I may, this is very important because I think this, this is a bit of a change because I think under Powell, we have seen a much larger focus on, on the domestic issues than before. Janet Yellen would, would normally refer or would see her much more as a global central banker than what, what Powell does. And it will have implications because, you know, it, it just shows the interconnectedness of the of the global financial system. And whether, of, whether they like it or not, they are a global central bank. They, they are indeed. But the, the point is that obviously we, we focused a lot on Argentina and Turkey and there were lots that would claim that they're idiosyncratic risks and there's jailed pastors. And I, I hear this, but at the at the bottom of this is still the, the problem that um, Steve has just outlined. And we're talking about a shortage in dollar liquidity. Um, and you could add the underperformance of the global banks in from an equities point of view that literally point in the same direction. There is stresses in the system that so far have only really um, focused on the weakest links, but we should not ignore them because they might have wider repercussions going forward. Okay, well, let's look at the other side of this. So if um, we're looking at the Fed for interest rates, um, growth um, has been driven globally really by China, James, uh, in in recent years, doubled the contribution of the US. But that might be ending because um, it's or at least slowing uh, at the moment. How concerned should we be? 
So, I mean, I think we need to look at China in, in two contexts. One is um, it's had a phenomenal level of growth for, for decades. And secondly, it's slowing, yes, but from very high rates to still quite high rates. And the second bit of context is the last five-year Congress, the party was very clear it intended to enact policies that would solve some of the rural-urban divide, but at the same time would slow growth. So we'd expect slowing growth. They forecast that was going to happen. It's happened, and it is happening. You know, so the real concern is not does growth slow, but is it what often gets called a hard landing? Does it does it fall below, you know, maybe a, a reasonable expectation? And, and you know, my base case is actually no. That that you know, the fears over China are over exaggerated. I think they're over exaggerated partly because it's a very easy and popular narrative to go with because the, the data is, is somewhat obtuse. It's hard to really know what's going on. Um, but when you actually look at China, what you've seen is is a couple of things. One is yes, you know, infrastructure, real estate. Uh, markets, you know, rolling over a bit. You're seeing actually consumer confidence um, in at least some areas uptick, some areas flatline, but it's still positive, um, all but one, and so all but one bit of data. And therefore, you know, you look at it, and you say actually, you've seen a bit of a, re- you're seeing a bit of a rebalancing, a bit of a change. But then roll back and take a big picture look on China and say, well, actually, you know, the the sort of what they'd call their secondary or tertiary cities, but those cities with populations actually about the size of London, so not small cities. Um, have virtually no infrastructure, yet are industrialising fast. And in a world in which you have a country that has cities with populations of 5 to 10 million with virtually no infrastructure um, that, are, that are in the process of industrialising and being used as a source of labour, often actually by the West or in, 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 in joint ventures, there is a phenomenal um, potential for upside. Clearly, there's, there are risk factors, right? And you know, we can't ignore the, the potential for a trade war or the fact we're in a trade war, depending on how you like to define it. You know, My guess is that's a bit of a storm in a teacup. And in a couple of years, we'll look back and say, OK, maybe there are some tariffs in place, but it's been broadly resolved. But but that does create some, some short to medium term downside risk. But do, do I believe the engine of growth is derailed? If that's how you define China, no, I do not. If um, America does or doesn't see itself as the the world's central banker, um, does China consider it has a role in global growth, uh, Sonia, or is it um, purely uh, domestically focused? They, they sort of came to the rescue last time. That's a very interesting question, and um, I think it's something that will be redefined over the next decade or so, because we're literally um, on the edge of, of seeing the old kind of world order changing quite dramatically. And in that context, we have the question around the world's central bank and the reserve currency and the world's kind of growth driver. And so far, it has been a clearer picture on who's who. This might change over time. And I think we're just currently, if you look at the shorter term picture, obviously in the, in this big kind of unknown whether um, the new normal for Chinese growth, I think we all agree, will not provide a new stimulus. And that's the important differentiation because it means for us from an asset um, or evaluation point of view that there might be not a new catalyst that kind of we could hang our hat on and say, oh, wow, that's great. And that that's the big differentiation because um, for the past couple of years, China always provided this new stimulus where, where this time around they might not do this and just accept that it will be a lower level and more sustainable level of growth. And I think that's that's the, the, the big differentiation. I think for the time being... Um, that's more important and obviously has a domestic motivation because it's around obviously the indebtedness, um, the sustainability of new debt levels. Um, and has hence, you know, you probably could argue this is more domestically oriented, but we have seen a much greater awareness of their responsibility in terms of global foreign policy and their kind of position on the world stage, as, which is a big change um, compared to the past. Absolutely. And so for the next kind of 10, 20 years is really the question how we will see this 
and relationship between the US and China develop, because inevitably China will be the larger economy versus the US. And um, interestingly, obviously, now Mr. Trump seems to try to defeat the world order they have established post-World War II. So there will be lots of interesting kind of side effects that will come um, about this development. I think, uh, you know, the point you make about China is very important, because when I think about the world, uh, boil it down into two factors. On the, on the one hand, you look at uh, the Fed. The Fed set the global cost of capital through the Fed funds rate and indirectly by 10-year treasuries, etc. And, you know, that obviously that um, interest rate differential will drive the dollar. So it's the, the U.S. really sets the, the cost of capital. Uh, I look at China and I see China as setting the global rate of growth. And so the two work hand in hand. So you think back to 2015 when China devalued its currency in August of that year and it was going through a massive capital account um, uh, reduction. So there's money pouring out of China. The uh, currency was de- it was depreciating very rapidly. There we did see a volatility spike in markets. And by February of 2016, China was in a real mess. The growth was stalling. Uh, they cannot allow growth to you know, go below sort of you know five percent or so. So they turned the taps on in massive style, and they did credit expansion of around about four trillion dollars which is about 43% of GDP. In one year, wow. it was a bazooka. It was enormous, a massive amazingly amount. it worked. Well, and it lifted all boats. So I think that's where you saw the cyclical recovery. So on the one hand, you had the Fed, who was still maintaining very low interest rates, et cetera, but still untapering. But um, it, was the, it was China that re-stimulated the global economy and lifted all boats. Now you're in a situation where Chinese growth is again stalling, which is not surprising given the fact that China has really maxed out on debt. And that debt is going is having less and less, having diminishing returns. It's becoming less and less productive for every dollar of debt. And so, therefore, it's a huge misallocation of resources. They're, re- they're in trouble again. So what do they do? They go back to what they always do, and they want to stimulate. And so the question for markets right now is whether or not China can do another bazooka and I just don't think they can. I think um, Sonia is exactly you, you right. You think they're spent? I think they, they will do everything they can to at least mitigate the slowdown, but not to re-stimulate because their, their biggest maxim at the beginning of the year was, was financial stability, was deleveraging. And so therefore, you know, all they can do is a fiscal response here, but just to, to really soften the blow, but not to actually re-stimulate. And we're off to the races again. Okay, you've, you've mentioned markets, and I want to move us away from the big picture. We've got the, the scene now set into how this translates uh, into markets, because we are in this peculiar market at the moment, the unloved uh, bull run, James. Uh, where do we go now? Is there a bubble uh, that feels it has to be popped? Um, are, are we at that stage? I mean, you know, Richard, it's you never know where you are in the market cycle until you until you've got past it um so so we're all trying to to guess the impossible but i think you know my 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 starting point on that is is first of all it's completely true i mean we know we're, we're unlikely to see economic growth materially accelerate from here that suggests we're probably late cycle and we look at valuations and think yeah given what's gone on probably late cycle conversely um it's been a a Perhaps the other thing that surprised me since the financial crisis is how unenjoyable this bull market has been. I'm yet to see anyone particularly enjoy it. And I think part of that's the emotional scars of 08 that will last with us throughout our careers, sadly. But equally, there hasn't been that sense of animal spirits. There hasn't been that sense of excitement. There hasn't been that sense of... But maybe know, this time is different price. and there won't be the animal spirits. There won't be the last hurrah. Well, yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the challenge is that, is that, that debate between um, you know, saying we're in a new paradigm and whenever you say that, um, normally you're proven 
and wrong. And so it, it's entirely conceivable that we have a, a that when we look back in, in 10 years' time at why we had a bear market, the answer will be the repricing of assets based on um, a zero rate for risk-free based on um, excess central bank liquidity, all these other things. And we'll say, actually, the bear market was so obviously coming because people had taken too much risk chasing yield or chasing return, all these other things. And therefore, all you saw was a, a reversion as, as rates rose, for example. That is entirely conceivable. But I think it is also entirely conceivable that we do see um, a period of excess momentum in, in an area of the market. And that's the point at which, you know, you start calling a, a, a truly sort of late cycle boom that, that, that you want to want to de-risk from. There is one thing I'd add, which is clearly, you have seen a lot of froth in the fangs. Um, and I don't think we can talk at all without talking about markets. Froth, about- froth in the fangs, my yeah. favourite phrase so far. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you, you like that, Richard. I've been Very rehearsing Dracula, it for a while. Dracula exactly. style. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, that, that momentum in the tech stocks is there. Um, and it's such a narrow one. That, that in a way, maybe I'm a bit less worried because it's only a few stocks. But but Sonia, clearly you can you can elucidate. Yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think that is the reason why it has not been an enjoyable bull market because it was just a handful of stocks. And I think it's very um, I don't know whether we have any historic precedents where market leadership from a regional sector and stock perspective has been so narrow that um, you have w- without any exposure to those you had no chance whatsoever to produce what we obviously as an active manager is is called alpha. So there was very little chance to outperform the broader market. To my mind, it is a sign that it's a very unhealthy backdrop as well, because it tells me that investors are hiding in what has been perceived as kind of relative winners. It clearly has worked. And um, we've debated at length, you know, how is this going to be resolved? Can we assume um, that the either the factor or the style, because obviously in that context, we have to mention that value has underperformed dramatically um, growth quite obvious because if it's around tech stocks, it's tech sector and it's the US, then it's clear that it can only be uh, found in in growth and, and momentum. So can we expect, you know, in the context of the end of cycle assumption that this is going to turn dramatically? And I think here we came to the conclusion, no, it it can only be a negative resolution, i.e. we have to see those segments, so the US, the tech sector and the FANG and the BATS, I guess I have to include, to at least market perform or underperform before we then obviously alongside hopefully a new economic cycle see um, what then would be a much better value backdrop um, than what we have right now. But but but, but then they're, they're not a classic bubble, are they? They're, there's not hype around those particular companies. They're, they're very successful companies. No, no, no. I, there I would disagree. The, the hype is not broad enough to make it kind of this hyperbolic kind of expectation that the whole market will um, um, expand towards the end. So this last hurrah, because there's only five stocks. Can we see them, you know, outperform? Yes. But the, the point is, and we haven't talked about opportunities yet, um, the, we'll, the we'll expectation that. that we have is at least that um, we should start looking at other areas because they, they have been left out so dramatically, which is so unusual about this last part of the market. You're right, Sonia. The, the interesting thing, though, and, and, and the thing that I haven't completely reconciled in my own head is you've had this, um, the last year, you know, really since financial crisis, this growth in in. Um, factor-based strategies, smart beta strategies, a lot, a lot of which are minimum volatility, minimum variance, etc. Phenomenal weight of money going into them, um, and yet they're almost the anti-fangs 
because you know theoretically those are not low volatility stocks. Maybe they are. They are but part the, of those. Well, and I know models. they are. But why are they? And therein lies my question. Self-fulfilling. Yeah, well, yeah. But but you've got something that is only going up. And and the, the the buyers of those strategies, to my mind, are people who think they're buying things that don't have a lot of positive price momentum, and therefore actually will do well in a down market. Um, which segues into your question of, of uh, that that I know is is kind of. I'm supposed to be answering. But, you know, and therefore, actually, there's the, that is one of your risks of disillusionment. One of the things that causes, of course, a bear market and a crisis is people don't get, weren't getting from their investments what they thought they were getting. And I think you've got two areas that worry me. One is actually people who think they've got low volatility, low risk stocks, um, and maybe have the fangs. The other is people who've bought what they perceive as safe stocks because they are yielding an income giving an income, a natural income, um, but actually either that income isn't sustainable or simply their valuations have been pushed up so much that st- they still have a real risk of capital loss. Um, and, and I am slightly worried, you know, we saw earlier in the year and we, you know, I've talked about it a bit, the sort of capitas of this world and the Carillions, which were companies that simply were not sustainable business models. And I think one of the things that could crack is perceived safe, safe companies because they had a yield aren't safe because there was a lack of free cash flow behind them. So those are the, the, the things that worry me. Where do you go in that environment? Um, you know, my, my, my starting point is, and, and Sonia alluded to it, value X financials. And I view that to an extent as a bit of a two-way bet more than Sonia does, I think, that, that I think there is a possibility of a change in leadership that says fangs start underperforming other areas of the market, the weight of money simply rotates into them, and that pushes those up. Um, the second point, though, which is perhaps more important, is value, again, X financials in a down market um, could be a very attractive place to be within equities. And you have to think not just where do I want to be in terms of between asset classes, but also within. And and to my mind, traditional value um, is is the one area that could be a, a relatively good two-way position in, 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 in the current environment. Okay, well, we'll come to positioning um, for for this, you know, potential downturn or whatever comes next um, uh, in a little while. But um, Steve, let me come to you. We've, we've got all these distortions and peculiar behaviour um, in the equity markets. What about um, in, in credit? How are things behaving there? And what what is the transition that you're seeing at the moment? Well, you know, the big theme in the last few years in credit markets has been a hunt for yield. And that's been perpetuated by a very low interest rate environment. And just the need to to find some kind of form of um, return, and that's generally come from from you know the yield rather than say from duration, etc. Um, and I think we're getting to a point where now, as interest rates are going higher, it's going to make it more difficult. That you know we're still in a very low volatility environment, so people are still hunting for yield at least for the time being. But the the um, we've seen quite resilience in some markets, in particular in U.S. high yield and investment grade, um, also in U.S. high yield, because, you know, frankly, as, uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, in the U.S., you've seen uh, the you've seen money coming back onshore. In, so money supply has been relatively robust in the U.S. Um, supply has been very, very low in the U.S. high yield market. So I've been actually quite surprised just how resilient it is, whereas other parts, such as emerging markets, you've seen a very large sell-off in spreads, and you've seen quite sharp dislocation in those markets. Is it postponing the inevitable, though, in the US? Well, I think so. But for the, the key question for credit investors and, and you know, fixed income investors in, in general um, is really what happens next year. It's normally the Fed is the catalyst for market corrections. You know, every, every cycle ends because the Fed over tightened. And there's a risk that, you know, when you look at what's priced in now for the Fed, uh, we're now at 2% Fed funds target rate. Uh, we've got two hikes pricing for this year and one and a half next year. So if the Fed actually continue through and actually deliver on those rate hikes, 
we're going to have a Fed funds rate closer to 3%. So that's going to be, that's your hurdle rate, is now going to be higher and higher. And the question is, does this actually push the US over the, to- over the edge? Does it actually generate a recession? Because, you know, frankly, if you look at high yield spreads um, in across all markets, even investment grade for that matter, we've had a very virtuous cycle in the last 10 years or so. You've had very low interest rates have, and very low yields have actually made it very easy to refinance amidst a huge amount of liquidity. And now as interest rates are going higher and liquidity is now being drained, that hurdle rate is going to get more and more difficult for sovereigns and for corporates to, to, to refinance. So the virtuous cycle, you know, you, you think about the number of zombified companies in the world. Uh, there's been you know, many studies looking at um, the reason why they're still an ongoing concern and still actually um, trading is that just by virtue of very low interest rates and the, the ability to refinance. In any other normal circumstance, they would have gone bust. But we have an economy which is hugely unproductive because of the provision of very low interest rates. And so they, they're keeping afloat. But that can really... For now. For now. But that can unwind. If you see Treasury yields moving higher and Fed funds rate moving higher, and it's going to get more and more difficult for them to refinance, then that unwinds the virtue cycle and to turn into a vicious cycle. So that's the... the there's already a signaled path um, uh, from the Fed, but there is the risk of central bank uh, policy mistakes, um, which uh, are the thing that we're, we're all scared of. What we haven't talked about is inflation, which um, could be on the, on the rise. Uh, oil has risen dramatically um, over over the past year. Uh, we're beginning to see wages rise uh, in, in the US. Um, how does that change the dynamic? Well, as James said, you know, wage rises in the US and elsewhere have been very subdued up until now. But now with labor markets appearing to be quite tight, it could be that it's like pulling um, you know, brick along the floor with a elastic band. You suddenly, nothing happens for a long time and suddenly the, uh, the brick moves very rapidly. And you know, we could see a very sharp spike in wages here and you look at um, you, you look at things like Fed surveys, and you look at uh, the Atlanta Fed survey of um, inflation expectations. The you know it, it does show that core inflation is going to move higher in the U.S. And if that's the case, then the Fed have to act. They have to tighten. They have to keep progressing with Fed rate hikes. And that's the problem: is that inflation, if inflation is indeed in the system, and I, I just I'm not quite convinced in my mind whether or not it is, because I do think. There are some powerful disinflation forces in the global economy as well. But if, if the U.S. inflation is pushing higher, at least in the short term, it means that the Fed will have to ignore, you know, they will have to just carry on with the, the, the tightening of the balance sheet and uh, Fed rate hikes. And that, I'm afraid, could actually you know, tip the, the U.S. into a period of stagflation. And, and maybe I should come in there. So, um, you know, I'm clearly, um, and Richard knows this from a lot of discussions we've had, um, the, the, the big worrier about inflation probably at Fidelity. As one of my colleagues said to me recently, well, you'll be right in the end. You've just got to wait. Um, and, the and, stopped and, clock. Exactly. <laughs> um, and maybe that's true. But, but you know, and, 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 and Steve has just won the prize for the best analogy of the year, probably Absolutely. with the elastics are well done. Um, but, but, you know, inflation is a worry to me. And inflation's a worry because I don't, you know, I actually think a lot of the deflationary factors that we've had over the past 10, 20 plus years have, have ended. And, 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 you know, first of all, I think EM cheap labor as a source is, is certainly less. Secondly, um, and this is the big one to me, I don't believe the internet is, 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 a, is a deflationary force. I think the internet is a price discovery mechanism and prices have been discovered. Um, so you had a period of effective deflationary impact because everyone could ascertain the cheapest price for anything. And that's ended. And in a world where that's ended, 
and actually a world where we no longer have sticky prices or menu costs because of the internet. Um, the risk because people that, can change is that you can change will. your prices very yeah. quickly. Um, the risk is that if and and we heard um, actually from from one of the um, U.S. equity analysts um, only this week that um, companies are seeing the, seeing the ability to pass through. Uh, cost increases, wage cost increases quite rapidly. It's very easy to, to do that in a rapid cycle. You see a competitors are doing it, you do it, it, it becomes a vicious cycle of, of price and wage inflation. Um, so I think the risk of inflation getting high is or materially high from certainly from what we've been used to for the last 10 plus years um, is really there and the central bank policy to that is inevitable. So a very different uh, central bank uh, situation, a very different monetary approach. Sonia, where do the opportunities lie in a market like this? I think before identifying opportunities, it's very important that these adjustment processes will be with us for a long period of time. So we have to be very nimble and very mindful that this is not done in a quarter's adjustment, you know, speaking of emerging markets. or So the, the immediate reaction function, yes, can be very short term, but there will be an ongoing reassessment of what actually opportunities are and how we should look um, at these in the context of a potential um, final stage of the cycle, changing monetary policy. And obviously, from an equity markets perspective, this extreme market leadership. So that, that's kind of the framework we, we try to put in place before then starting to say, OK, what, where do we feel we should start looking for good opportunities? And that means to start with all the sectors that have been dramatically left behind and where we feel that actually we have sufficient visibility on the business model, the cash flow, the earnings stream, and where there has not been a massive buildup in leverage. Again, so another framework to look at individual companies. That's a quick little checklist. This is where then obviously the dividend yield um, will play a different angle because if we look at the importance of the dividend yield, then this is well documented over the long term. Interestingly, over the last five years, we've had a much larger contribution from multiple expansion than we had from earnings growth and dividend yield. If we agree that because of the changes from QE to QT, that will not at least repeat itself, then the dividend yield and the earnings um, growth will be much more important to determine the attractiveness of underlying stocks. And that means that if I look at um, some of the left behind sectors, and again, the most important part is do not buy just the yield. You buy the business model, you buy the earnings stream and the cash flow. And if that comes with a 5% dividend yield, to my mind, is a very good starting proposition. Because in our own capital markets assumption, 5% is pretty good. And so this is what, what, what we really started to look at and gives you a good idea on, on where the opportunities are. And you will not be surprised, there is quite a few companies in those left behind sectors, which I think are now a good starting proposition to look at, because they should provide you with more stability in what will be inevitably a much more uncertain environment, because as I said, um, the reassessment and the readjustment process will be with us for quite some time. And it sounds like it's not a broad brush approach to sectors. Not at all. So you might find good companies within healthcare. You might even find good individual stories in utilities. But again, be mindful, rising interest rates, bond proxies, sectors left behind. So there's lots of things to to capture. Hence what we've said for a, for a number of, of months now. Obviously, the active selection is key to your success going forward. But hence, you know, having a good framework on what you're looking for and what you assume is going to be the changing environment will help you guide you and navigate the market backdrop. Steve, what about fixed income? How are you readjusting to this? What are you, what's your approach when you're looking for the opportunities? Well, I think in fixed income, you have to keep this pretty simple. And um, I think the biggest opportunity right now is more in the short duration income type strategies where 
you know, you're trying to mitigate some of the uh, the risks from rising yields, um, and you know, by having this short duration type of um, uh, fund exposure, but also you still need that income, and that's you know, it's a key thing for many investors. Uh, so it's very much a defensive type of strategy, but still generating sufficient income to to you know provide the the return that investors require. And, and James, what strategies are you deploying now that you weren't a little while ago? How are things now changing in multi-asset? So I think, I think Richard, um, and I'd, I'd not disagree with anything that's been said so far, I do think it's a time where alpha matters more than beta. Um, and, you know, the, the, that, that's in two contexts. One is, um, and the thing we learned from 07 was, you know, you had this weight of money moving to passive 07, massively disillusioned in 08. You do not want to be um, passive late cycle in in most markets because the, the, the both because returns can become muted, but also when you see a downturn, the last thing you want is to own the whole index. The second area of alpha that I'd, I'd really want to focus on is is alternatives. And, you know, be it, whether it's long, short, um, equity, market, neutral, etc. Strategies that aren't reliant on a direction in the market to generate a turn, but instead, instead reliant on skill, um, are vastly more attractive at this time because they are immune from market changes, immune from all these environments, provided the, the underlying uh, managers are making the right decision. And therefore, um, that reliance on alpha in both both areas is, is, is very important. I'd just tangentially add, of course, there are um, what we like to call esoteric beta areas of the market, be that asset leasing or you know social infrastructure, etc. Areas where you can... You can uh, um, invest in a beta in the sense there is a beta but it's not highly correlated to equities and therefore again it just provides you some immunity from those traditional asset classes where there are some you know natural concerns at this point in the cycle so time now to move beyond the obvious and into uh, a little bit of more variety exactly that's a much better way of putting it thank you Richard <laughs> um, well We're coming to the end now. I just want to ask um, each of you, what keeps you up at night? It's been this long um, bull run. It's been odd, um, but it hasn't been bad. Sonia, what worries you? The complacency that markets still show towards the idea that we we are facing a regime shift. The idea that we are very um, used to the support from central banks and massive amounts of liquidity supporting all asset classes. I think we we have just seen the first inklings of what might be ahead of us. And I think we have to be very just aware and and nimble to make sure that we're not missing what might be quite profound shifts in markets. Be aware, be very aware. (laughs) James, what about you? What keeps you up? So, um, too many things is, is obviously the answer, Richard. But, but, but specifically, in, the, in you know, I think what really worries me is is investor disillusion. Um, and you know what we've seen since the financial crisis is uh, the millennial generation essentially not participating in the stock market, basically saying it's not for me. Um, what worries me um, in the in the next bear market is those investors, which is the majority of the the, the the population across the world who have participated in this bull market, have invested, become disillusioned because what they've owned, which they perceived as safe or perceived as as you know because because they thought it was low volatility, because they thought it was generating income, turns out not to be as safe as they thought. And we know investors have been pushed up the risk spectrum, particularly um, the older generation who are seeking an income, um, there is a real risk for capital loss. And that disillusionment could mean in the next cycle, there simply isn't much money on the table because not many people wish to, to deploy um, money in, 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 in traditional markets. So that that maybe that's what worries me the most, that, that when we see a bear market, um, it could have a big psychological impact um, on investors time. for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Steve, I've deliberately come to you last. Um, I notice that the glass in front of you on the on the table here is half empty. Um, from a fixed income point of view, what keeps you up? Well, I am. I do work in fixed income, therefore, by very nature, we tend to be more on the bearish side. <laughs> um, 
I, I think that uh, the, the biggest risk for me and what keeps me up at night is what I mentioned earlier, really, the subdued nature of volatility. And not only that, the implication of that is that when, as an asset manager, we do, you know, we stress us our funds and we, the funds really assume that the low volatility environment will persist. And so uh, there's a risk that if volatility does spike, that it could cause, um, you know, everyone to reassess and, and to sell uh, risk assets all at once. And I think the, um, the, the offsetting, well, the the thing that makes things worse is that the technicals in the market are very, very difficult to sell because it's a very small exit door with some of the, the counterparties, the banks, in other words, having you know much lower balance sheet tolerance and um, therefore they, it's going to be it's the, the liquidity that they provide to us in, is, is going to be much less. So if we do see the vol spike as a result of the Fed you know, tipping us over the edge with Fed rate hikes and drainage of dollar liquidity, uh, it could be a very small exit door for us to get out of. Everything's freezing up. Well, between you, I think you've uh, given me enough to worry about tonight, but I'll take comfort also from the areas uh, where you all think there are opportunities uh, in the in the months to come as we come to the end, perhaps, of this uh, great bull run. Let me thank now Steve Ellis, Head of Fixed Income PMs in Europe, Sonia Loud, Head of Equities, and James Bateman, CIO of Fidelity's Multi-Asset. Thank you all very much indeed. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, We've got lots more on this topic in our latest edition of Fidelity Answers. Just Google Fidelity Answers and you should be able to find it. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.